you know, when you see these big single owner collections come for sale too, you don't really see the whole thing. You see like a edited kind of best of version of that. You know, you don't see all of these collections are kind of have this sort of long tail and the tail can be, there's a value corollary to that, obviously, where you have like, you know, sort of top things like evening sale things or one might call them and then day sale. Uh, but then there's a lot of other things that some of those things might not even be, you know, saleable, you know, or collectible. When you bring a whole collection to market, you know, you're often working not only with, you know, the the big auction houses, right? But then midsize and small and, you know, you have to you have to bring all those things for sale and develop a strategy around it. Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. Live arts look behind the scenes at how the global art market really works. I'm your host, Marion Maniker. This podcast is brought to you by Live Art, the global art marketplace that puts you in control. Download the Live Art app to get all of the most relevant art market information, as well as access to exclusive private sales. Or visit us at liveart.io. Dane Jensen just opened his own art advisory firm in Los Angeles. He has worked in the art and auction industry as a curator, auction house specialist, and art advisor. That said, he became much more visible after engaging in an epic bidding war over Ernie Barnes' Sugar Shack 2 that sold to energy trader Bill Perkins for more than $15 million at Christie's in May of 2022. In this podcast, Jensen talks about the role of an art advisor, what makes Los Angeles distinctive in terms of its collectors, their goals, and what they value. But we also talk about Ernie Barnes, how his market has rapidly globalized, and of course, what it was like to bid in that wild auction for the Sugar Chef. I hope you enjoy it. Dane Jensen, you have been an art advisor for a while, but you just opened your own uh, business in Los Angeles. I thought we could start with you just telling us a little bit about your new business. Uh, thanks for having me, Marion. Um, the new business is called Dane Jensen Fine Arts, based here in Los Angeles. As you know, I've been an art advisor for a long time, so it's an art advisory firm. And um, the core of it really reflects what I am about. So honesty, integrity, and uh, allows collectors to also have fun, you know, through the process. From a services standpoint, um, there are two threads. Uh, one is collection building for top collectors. So that combines my background uh, my curatorial or academic background, as well as his background as a specialist and auctioneer. And I think what you get in the middle is really dynamic collection building. And, you know, that's something that I really want to reflect in, in the new firm. Uh, and then on the other side of that is collection divestment. So this involves the sale of whole collections, developing a bespoke strategy, either for collectors that are looking to thin their collections or estates and the intermediaries that need to sell uh, an entire collection efficiently. And, um, you know, because I've come from an auction house background, I'm able to really find uh, ways and good strategies to do things like develop a really high sell-through rate and and get things sold in a, in a good amount of time. Well, that, that used to be a relatively small 
part of the business. And because of the demographics, this whole generation of collectors uh, coming to term, it's now uh, flipped and become kind of the centerpiece uh, of the business. There are many people who helped assemble the collections that are now advising on either their dispersal or helping to manage the strategy around you know, a single owner sale. Uh, and I, I presume that that's, um, again, those are sort of different skill sets, right? Putting the collection together is not the same thing as figuring out the right way to, to sell it and to either maximize value uh, or, or maximize recognition for uh, the collector. I think we often forget that, you know, a lot of the um, compensation for being a collector is non-monetary, even if uh, we sometimes keep score through the dollars, we're re really people are interested in being recognized for their their taste, their interests, their their vision. You know, uh, what you, you know, when you see these big single owner collections come for sale too, you don't really see the whole thing. You see like a edited kind of best of version of that. You know, you don't see all of these collections are kind of have this sort of long tail and the tail can be, there's a value corollary to that, obviously, where you have like, you know, sort of top things like evening sale things or one might call them and then day sale. Uh, but then there's a lot of other things that some of those things might not even be, you know, saleable, you know, or collectible. Uh, but then, you know, you obviously have a, uh, you can do that corollary in terms of like um, sort of looking at the, uh, a more difficult metric of like what's good, right? So yeah, things that are really like uh, well chosen and very good things, uh, and then that kind of uh, tapers off. So when you bring a whole collection to market, you know you're often working not only with big, you know the the big auction houses, right? But then midsize and small, and you know you have to you have to bring all those things for sale and develop a strategy around it. You know, like uh, I mean. Some of these collections are real fascinating. Like, you know, Paul Allen's collection is like infinitely fascinating for, you know, a number of different reasons. But also, you know, when you when you saw, you know, the billion dollars worth of uh, artworks that were sold, uh, you probably didn't see lots and lots of things that, you know, just never came to market or weren't that visible. Or, you know, I'm sure he had many, many things, you know, so... Oh, I think what was so interesting about that collection was actually the number of things they included that you would have thought would have gotten edited out. There were some uh, Seattle artists who did very well in the sale, but you know when they got um, you know shown, they were kind of big paintings in a narrow hallway, just because you know uh, with a five or ten thousand dollar estimate, they, they sold for much more than that. They still weren't going to get the wall space and, and presentation. And you could, I never can tell when you see some of these sales how much of that is uh, defending the collector's interests. I remember uh, a dozen years or so ago, there was a um, significant sale at Christie's. And there was a minor California artist, one of his works just came up uh, uh, this season, was included in the evening sale. And, 
you know, I'd gotten into a conversation with a dealer about about this, and and we were remarking on the fact that you know that's one of the signs of a real collector, maybe even someone who who eschews um, advice, is this you know determination. I'm right about this artist. I don't care what the world <laughs> thinks. I think this this guy's important, and and seeing that work included in the evening sale was almost uh, uh, from beyond the grave. You know, you you will uh, recognize this artist. Uh, uh, whether you like it or not. <laughs> yeah. You know, as an art advisor, when you're assembling a collection, you're, you're, you know, one of your roles is uh, as a tastemaker, right? And so that is sort of talking to your clients about sort of what's, uh, you know, so what's quote unquote good, right? Uh, within an artist's practice or, you know, uh, within a segment of an artist's work, you know. So for example, like if you look at like Gustin, right? Like a like a fifties or sixties Gustin, even though they're abstractions, it's like really, really incredible. And I bought a great one for, for a client and, you know, he sort of uh, was thinking about, I think him correctly. So is it more of a figurative artist and how does that fit into my collection? I, you know, when you really look at this, when you really do the research, the sixties and fifties things were incredible. And he had a show at the Guggenheim. I mean, that had its own segment and you could see, kind of where the value was in that. And I was able to uh, acquire with him right before that kind of market started to rise, you know, which is another kind of aspect of this. But, you know, uh, I think when you really look at these things in terms of art advisory, when you're building a collection, you have to be able to sort of help people find those different avenues. And then also tell them like, well, you know, I know this is a Jackson Pollock and I know this fits into your budget, but this is like, you know, not a good Jackson Pollock. <laughs> so maybe we should be looking at other things. And I think one of the things, you know, uh, in terms of what we're talking about with Paul Allen is, is that as a hypothetical, you know, scenario, right? You have somebody who essentially had an unlimited budget. It's like the dream. Uh, I mean, you know, when you work with um, certain clients, right, they have they might say, you know, I'm comfortable in the one and a half to $2 million range. That's like yeah. kind of evening sale light, right? Day sale heavy uh, in terms of value. Um, he had an unlimited budget. So when you look at that collection, one of the interesting things to sort of look at is like, what do you buy when you had an unlimited budget? And for me as an art advisor, you know, if I was advising somebody with an unlimited budget, would I have bought those things or how would I do that differently? Because that scenario doesn't really come up, especially, you know, today we got a fair amount of works in the 20 to $50 million range or, you know, lots of things in the kind of the five to 10. So, and not everybody can, can do that. And you have to work within that framework to find kind of the good things or the good opportunities for them. But, you know, even with an unlimited budget, you are still constrained by all of the various, uh, you know, either lack of opportunities or opportunities. I mean, I, I earlier in this season had a conversation with someone who advises another person with an unlimited budget, and they were trying to point out to me, the money, if you're in that position, is the easy part. Getting the art is the hard part getting the right work at, you know, uh, getting the right Picasso or the Picasso that you think befits your, uh, uh, collection is actually gets harder and harder as you go up the scale, because, you know, most of those works are held in, in long-term collections. Uh, there are people who don't need the money. It's not easy to, to pry them loose. 
And so how do you deal with, you know, strategies around that? I mean, the, the auction is only one way of acquiring uh, artworks. And one of the values of having an unlimited uh, budget is, is the opportunity to make people an offer uh, uh, privately uh, uh, for things. But I assume, you know, in, in, in any collecting strategy, you have to sort of think through what you can either pry loose or might have the potential of coming loose and maybe get yourself in there before, um, you know, the work comes to auction or is being offered uh, around privately. I found in my experience, very, very hard to buy things that are not for sale. You know, when you approach a collector and you say, Hey, listen, you know, I, my uh, client would like to like to buy this piece that you have. Um, I think, uh, that is a difficult process, particularly because collectors are very possessive about things. And, you know, it's a little bit of a dance. They kind of know, want to know what you might offer for it. But then it, I think it usually quickly comes off the table unless it's a offer that they can't refuse. But, um, but I, I think it's a very difficult thing to do. It's, what's better to do is to really look is to have a network of these things that are quietly being sold behind the scenes. And that comes from working with. Uh, you know, having the trust of other art advisors uh, and different people who can give you access to those things. Um, you know, it's something that I've worked really hard on, but there's, you know, these, um, because somebody might offer you something, but you have to make sure that they ha they can actually finish the transaction too. <laughs> and that's one of the difficult things with this kind of like, I don't want to say it's underground, uh, but you know, sort of quietly sold, uh, kind of multi-million dollar artworks, you know? No, look, the, the, the most interesting thing about, uh, art is it's very difficult to buy on the primary market. You have to, uh, create the right relationships. You have to prove yourself. You're often, you know, uh, demands are made upon you to either, uh, uh, make donations or buy other works in the pro program uh, on the private market. There's an endless network of runners and people who may or may not be uh, uh, for for real. I mean, it's a it's a it's a scavenger hunt, and I suppose that's part of what makes it exciting and interesting. But it also makes it you know your role necessary. I mean, you, you wouldn't need an art advisor if it were easy to buy art. It was just a matter of going through some catalogs and saying, "I'd like the, this." Uh, but but you do need an art advisor to deal with the um, the complexities uh, of this industry. In your experience, at what stage do people come to you, or are people coming to you because they've started collecting and either had a you know difficult time of it or a bad experience and think, oh, you know, I need an advisor to handle this? Or do they just start out saying, I'm not even going to try this my, myself? And, uh, you know, what, whatever, it's a real estate purchase, uh, some sort of life transition, they say, I'd like to, you know, start collecting art, and they sort of go through, uh, I don't even know, do they, do, how does one find an art advisor through a, someone else that uh, uh, has a collection they admire and they ask who their advisor is like finding a good tailor or is it uh, you know you go through a directory and uh, interview art advisors you know you can uh, a lot of it's word of mouth uh, these are very personal relationships N nobody really needs to buy art so you know I think um, you know these things come out of conversations and and, um, you know, I try to really understand when I'm in front of a collector, what, uh, sort of what their goals are, where they want to take the collection, because most of the collectors that I deal with 
already have collections and then they want to they want to tweak they want to level up you know they want to take those to a different level and you know i can provide for them guidance um you know market intelligence but also just like a partner you know in these things it's it's something that you can build together it's their collection and i'm just here to help them shape it and provide new opportunities for them and i think that uh most collectors you know find that a, a very valuable thing you know when you're you feel like you're working collaboratively on something because as you said it's it's a treasure hunt right so you know let's say i want to uh i have some clients that love bidding at auction right so uh you know you fly in you're looking at like 2000 artworks you know and then you have to they want to know what you like you want to know what they like you have to vet those things for condition for value find and then you have to put them in a position to be able to buy it you know you have to uh understand what their expectations are and what the expectations of the house are and the performance of those things so all of those things have to line up and that's where the challenge starts right um but when you work on it and you start buying these things um you, i feel like you can immediately see the impact because one piece especially from a curatorial perspective can change everything else around it and when you get very interested in something you tend to stay in that lane and so some of my job is to take them out of that lane so for example i have a client who's very very interested in um in expressionist practices he likes like things that are very painterly uh we found a uh anish kapoor and a private collection in miami and it's a 60 inch disc and it's um made out of these little um octagons right so it's it has like a digital feel so when you put that in his collection it really provides a reflection and a reinterpretation of the other works around it so you can find these little things that are from a curatorial perspective that are really interesting that sort of increase the dynamic of a collection right so those are the kind of things that uh that i think an art advisor can do do really well with you know so in terms of helping an existing collection go to the next level you you um you work out of los angeles and i presume and maybe i'm wrong about this that most of your clients are uh, on the west coast at least or in the la area and 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 in your experience is there something different about the way uh it works in la i mean the the visibility of los angeles collectors and uh los angeles as an art market center has risen dramatically in the last decade maybe a little lo longer uh for you know there're more institutions there're more prominent collectors at least more visibly pro prominent co collectors there's now more galleries that there and uh an art fair uh you know over the last uh that period you know uh, uh i'm assuming it's changed a lot but it, uh, you you also deal with people around the the country and the world and i'm curious what you know makes la distinctive uh LA has never been afraid to throw history overboard <laughs> it's always continually interested in what's new um you know uh i used to uh you know when you when you hear like a like a previous generation talk about LA it's really interesting because you realize how new of a city it actually is uh you know the hollywood hills in the 60s 
were, uh, you know, dirt roads. And, you know, you look at, um, you know, the days of like Ed Keenholz and, you know, they were kind of, uh, you know, just finding things that were around and making, you know, assemblage works. And uh, I think, um, you know, that is the beginning. The beginning is like 19, the early 60s, you know, and you have a lot of different, obviously, uh, approaches and movements within the art world, but it's very different than, say, uh, Chicago or New York, where that timeline, that art historical timeline looks very, very different than that. Uh, you know, LACMA is not that old of an institution, for example. And, and you know, so the art historical lens, I think, becomes shorter. Uh, also, um, unlike other cities, I think Los Angeles really reveres the new. You know, they they thrive on new things. Uh, and so, you know, when you're assembling a collection, I try to build a collection that's has like timelessness, right? Cause you can see these, some of these collections like that are, that are capsules. So they are representative of a certain time. And sometimes like a lot of buying occurs within a short period of time. So you could see a collection that had Hearst, Murakami, um, uh, Anish Kapoor, uh, Anselm Kiefer. And then, you know, then they sort of stop acquiring because they have lots of things. And so, you know, the, uh, what you have to do, I think, particularly with an LA collection is sort of guard against, you know, this really trend-based buying. Cause that's the cultural, uh, you know, that's culturally what people like there. Right. So you try to find them things that, uh, you know, so 20 years from now, when people look at the collection, it's not just what everyone wanted in 2022 to 2025 or something. So I think, you know, just in terms of collection building with LA, it's always like interesting to have things from your own backyard, you know, really what you're doing is you're acquiring cultural production. So if you can acquire something from the artists in Los Angeles, or the artists in San Francisco, I think that just makes for a better collection. So, um, you know, really like working with the collectors in terms of understanding uh, these practices and why they're important is a really interesting thing just in terms of helping them uh, with that. So, you know, from LA, uh, you know, you've got a lot of minimalism, finish fetish and these kind of things. And, uh, but also some, some other practices that, you know, are, are sort of, uh, much more surprising and, you know, different layers of history. So, well, and now you have so many more artists with studios living in LA. I mean, it's become uh, a Mecca for artists, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a place to live and work. Yeah, that's right. It's, I think it's one of the things that's, uh, I have collectors and, uh, clients in San Francisco too. And one of the benefits to being in LA is that, artists can still live and work and have studio space there. Uh, we have, a, obviously now we have a huge amount of galleries. So it's, I think more and more artists are going to be coming in there. We also have in LA is really great art schools, you know? And so I think a lot of people forget that when you look at these markers of like what makes a great art city, that is a really fundamental thing. But the collectors within that milieu, are they more interested uh, because they're seeing galleries and seeing art, um, you know, being produced there, or are they interested because they're seeing other collectors uh, whom they uh, admire and want to emulate? 
you know, the, so much of art collecting is a, about having a peer group and being able to both connect a little bit, compete, but also, you know, uh, define yourself uh, uh, within that. And it seems there it, there are many more uh, prominent and visible collections in in Los Angeles now some have become public like the the Broad uh some of them are not so public but still in situ like Weissman we've got you know Norton Simon I mean there there's a history there but uh, but also it just seems in the way that people now uh, uh follow uh art collectors for for sort of guidance and uh uh, I don't want to call it thought leadership, but at least you know trend or taste making, as you mentioned uh, uh, earlier. It feels like LA has uh, a lot more going on uh, and more visible than many other cities. Yeah, when I started um, in the art business, I moved to LA in 2001, and you would go in these huge, giant houses in Beverly Hills, and they, you know they would might have like a you know a fake Chabal over the fireplace, like they're. <laughs> What's different now is that there is a culture of collecting. The culture of collecting basically means that you have certain high profile people, especially within certain industries that collect. And so I think a lot of people want to want to emulate that or it opens up a world to them where they say, I want that. Right. So um, now in L.A., we have the benefit of having a lot of creative fields uh, and then just traditional fields that collectors come from real estate finance right uh but music industry uh has you know uh, like jimmy ovine yours right exactly um you know people that are in the in um you know the entertainment business and that might include agents and that kind of thing so um you know when you you have these uh people who set the example for other people then they say well you know what does success look like to me uh, or what would I want to have when I uh, when I'm successful? And an art collection might be one of those things. And that wasn't necessarily the case. It was more about like size your house or you know cars or you know these like kind of very LA things. But now I think it's become cool to collect art, and um, and so it's made you know my profession much bigger in and uh, more possible in Los Angeles. So. So I cannot do a podcast with you without talking about Ernie Barnes. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and and part of what I want to talk about with Ernie Barnes is I was just looking at um there's a Barnes and there've been for several seasons in uh the Hong Kong sales uh in uh later this month. And I'm struck by you know how uh, an artist who is fairly unknown rapidly became very visible. Uh, you know, there's real art world mechanics there with, you know, p- uh, people getting involved in the state and acquiring work and, um, you know, participating in some of these uh, auctions that uh, uh, drew other interest. But there's also been this expansion globally and maybe those uh say the works being sold in hong kong aren't actually being sold to people in hong kong or even asia i don't know but the fact that it's being sold there and marketed through that is sending some kind of a a message and i was just curious to sort of so you obviously know that market uh, uh fairly well um, uh, having, uh, uh, for purposes of the podcast, having a bid on the, the top lot, uh, about, what was that a year ago, uh, uh, that auction, uh, 
uh, took place. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious to sort of what what's happened since May, uh, both for you and your client. Uh, meaning, have you continued to pursue uh, uh, Barnes's work, and you know what have you observed in the way that uh, market has grown? Yeah, so um, it was like an incredible moment. Obviously, when the sugar that the sugar shack sold uh, would have been better if I would have bought it, maybe. But <laughs> it was a cool experience, nonetheless. You can always go to Eddie Murphy. Maybe maybe he'll sell you his. We can talk about that. My history with Ernie Barnes goes back further than that. Um, actually, uh, I think I first sold. I sold four of his pieces from a celebrity collection to uh, another celebrity collection in this private museum in uh, 2018. And uh, obviously the prices looked very, very different back then, but you could kind of see that that was a really special practice. And um, uh, there was, and I had the opportunity to also visit um, the studio uh, because Luz Rodriguez still maintained um, the Ernie Barnes uh, studio. So I was able to go, which is right in LA. It's, it was so I was able to kind of go there and look through lots of different paintings. And at that time, we talked about what was available. Um, what I think was really surprising uh, about Ernie Barnes is that it's really two stories, right? Because when the Sugar Shack sold, people said, "Wow, this is new and exciting." But to lots of people. He's been around for a long time. He's immensely culturally important uh, to people and has been for a very long time. It's just that everybody else caught up, right? And part of that was because like the extraordinary result of that sale and the bidding and so forth. But um, it caught a lot of people by surprise, but other people were not surprised at all because they had known that. I I thought it was uh, incredibly instructive just to stand at that corner where Christie's had shown it that season. And uh, on a couple of times through there, I was behind people and who are approximately my age, and they all had the same reaction I had, which is they recognized it from the television show. And it was clear that there's a generation of people, even if they didn't know the story, it was familiar enough to, to them. And and sort of showing it in that way, kind of almost incidentally, but everyone passes by that, that corner, really seemed to, um, you know, tap into this almost subliminal uh, uh, thing about the cultural importance uh, uh, of the work. And then, you know, uh, uh, I suppose you, you you couldn't have predicted that um, uh, Perkins would show up uh, as, uh, as determined to buy the work as, as anyone. I'm not sure. M- money was no object to him, but clearly at that night, it, it was less of an object than... than uh, buying the work, though, uh, presumably your uh, clients were equally I- interested. And I'm sort of curious to know, uh, what was the the deciding factor on on sort of letting them ha- have it? Just the, the auction had gone on long and you just didn't know where it was going to go? Or was it a budget issue or the idea that, hey, this is a great painting, but there are others? I mean, how do you decide when to stop? Well, so... Uh, you know, when you go to the auctions, right, like, you know, this, like when, when you're in the, in the evening sale, it's a lot of the same people, right? It's the same faces and so forth. And I saw Bill Perkins walk into the room, uh, 
and there, there was some commotion that maybe he didn't have a seat or somebody was sitting in his seat or something like that. And, you know, these rooms are pretty big and he was sitting uh, almost like directly two rows behind me, which is also a little bit different because a lot of times when you're bidding, right, you're bidding with somebody on the phone or across the room or, you know, so it, it was like an extraordinary set of circumstances that kind of created this situation. Um, but I also had this thought of, oh, I haven't seen him in the room before. And I didn't know that I would be bidding against him, you know, over the, over the course of this auction. That was like when it started. And so um, when we started bidding, there were lots of bids coming from everywhere, right? So, and uh, I didn't even, I don't think we bid until maybe 2 million, somewhere around there. Um, but then very quickly, it was just him and us. So I was on the phone with my client. We're bidding. I knew where we were going to be. And I was 100% sure we were going to buy this painting for $3 million. Like that was the number that I had sort of projected. And so I knew I had a lot of runway. Uh, I didn't have, I didn't know it was going to go that high. Uh, I don't think anybody really did. But in that moment, we were just, you know, there's only... There are some things that are so special that you set the market. And I think that it's hard to realize that in the moment, but in retrospect, that's really what was happening, right? So, you know, it's just like, when else are we going to get a chance to buy this kind of cultural icon? And if you understood the importance of that picture, then, you know, the price maybe made more sense. Um, I'm very experienced in the auction room. So, you know, what I was trying to do is really like push him off balance, right? So, um, because I, I thought, well, he's new. I haven't seen him before. So, you know, I was playing with different increments and, uh, and it wasn't a stressful thing. Like we were having a kind of a good time, you know, it's a little bit of a sport and a volley that has a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of numbers behind it, but, uh, you guys, you guys were also posturing with each other. At one point you kind of exchanged wor words like, you know, Hey, essentially, you know, uh, to, to say, uh, I'm not stopping. Well, I'm not stopping either. So we'll, we'll see where it ends up. So, I mean, it, it was interesting that he, he came into it with a number as you did, but I think very quickly during the bidding, got very comfortable with a very high num number. I, I remember sitting behind him wondering, not not at the time knowing who, who he was, beginning to get nervous, like, like, oh my God, can this guy pay for this? You know, <laughs> this, this is so out of scale from, from where, where it started and, and you didn't re recognize him. Of course, I think one of the, I wouldn't say it's an advantage, but you, you may have been more comfortable in an auction setting, but as a a trader, he was very comfortable in a trading set, set, setting. So I think there was a certain element where, it, it, as you said, it sort of took on a life, life of its own. And it was, it was the same way a poker table turns uh, about playing the other person more than it is about the statistics on, uh, on the cards. But but you still had to stop. So So at some point, you just decided enough is enough? Well, yeah. So the idea was obviously the, the goal is to like win this picture, right? So to, to, to be able to acquire it. So during the course of the auction, uh, I mean, I've never really talked to another bidder during the auction, but I started to get a little bit uh, like annoyed because I wasn't, I wasn't able, he wasn't giving up basically, right? So I just said, hold on a second. And I turned, I put the phone down and I 
turned behind me and I said, um, you know, we're not giving up. And I thought maybe I could intimidate him into giving up. And I, I, maybe I poked the bear a little bit <laughs> because he, he, he said, you know, well, I'm going to make you pay. And it, I mean, that, that doesn't really happen in an auction room very often, as you know. So, um, so we just kind of continued on and we started to just get in the region where um, collection building starts to take hold, right? So you start thinking like, well, what else can we buy at this price level? Because we gave up at 12.9 and, uh, you know, for that kind of money, you know, you can buy other things. He came, it seems to me, from what I understand, is that he came for that one piece, right? So he was going to win that piece at all costs. When you're working with somebody who has a collection that's has lots of other things in it, they start to think, well, for this money, I can also do this or that or, you know. And so I think while uh, everybody wanted to sort of, you know, from my side, wanted to win that picture, we actually uh, were able to, you know, do other things with that. So uh, buy other Ernie Barnes and, you know, like a, a plus level things at a much different price level. So, well, uh, so what, what I think I hear you saying is, at some point, your priorities changed, your clients' priorities changed, and recognized that money is still money, and there are, it's fungible. And instead of putting it all in this one place at all costs, there were plenty of other things that you could accomplish with it. And I mean, Perkins uh, set the market per previous to this. He had bought the previous high, um, uh, uh, you know, record pr price at auction not too long before. So there's a certain element where, where that seemed to be his goal is to own the top prices in in, in that market. So it it doesn't sound to me like it was a um, a bad strategy on your part, right? <laughs> to figuring out that he was going to just keep going was something you needed to figure, and then be that also gave you the option of saying, "Well, we have the op, we have other things we can do." He clearly, you know, this is the the one thing he he wants to do uh, uh, with, with this. It seems like everyone got uh, in a weird way. Everyone got to where. Uh, uh, they needed to be, you know, it would have been nice to own the picture, I'm sure, from your your side, but, you know, he was determined. It's kind of like, where do you give up? You know, like somebody has to to win at, and sometimes it's, that's about money and sometimes it's about will, you know, or... It's the corollary. It's the corollary to what we were talking about earlier. You know, you're Paul Allen, you have an infinite amount of money. That doesn't mean you want to spend all of your money on one picture, even if you've got plenty, you know, it, it's there, there's a certain element where when you become the market, that's its own I issue. Um, uh, uh, certainly we've seen it in collecting categories where people, you know, bought all of the Art Deco furniture for years. And then when they went to sell it, realized they were the only buyer and there were really no underbidders. And, uh, you know, the value of the collection was uh, a fraction of it. I don't think that th those are the, uh, uh, you know, criteria that you, you're or he are working uh, under, but it is, you know, uh, a criteria you have to be uh, aware of, uh, especially in this kind of interesting thing where the value of a work of art is only what other people will pay for that. And that changes over time. It's not necessarily consistent. Yeah. I mean, there's this concept from a, a market standpoint, right, of like setting the market. So, you know, like, like the auction as like a pure market. If you, if you pay for it, 
then that is what the value of it is, you know, especially with these kind of elite strata of uh, pictures or sculptures. Um, and I think it takes some bravery when you're pushing into new areas, you know, and, and I have to help clients with this. This is a really great thing. We can push a little bit here, you know, and, uh, but at some point, um, you know, if they, if, if you help them recognize what the whole field is, you know, your, your eye or your mind starts going to other things, you know, Oh, could I have bought, I don't know, you know, Rothko for this same amount of money for this picture, you know, there's other, other options and collection building. You're not going to be able to uh, ever uh, acquire everything you want to acquire. Like what we're talking about with an unlimited budget, even, you know, it's just a hard well, so. Well, there's also another effect. Uh, uh, you, you call it, call it headroom in the sense that when when a, there is a much higher price, we saw this in the Basquiat market a few years ago, established. It's not that the next thing that happens is someone pays close to that price. What happens is much lower down, people feel more comfortable spending more. So in in um, Barnes, uh, you know, previous high price, I, I think, been around half a million dollars. Uh, and and now with this fifteen million dollar sale, we saw successively a number of sales around a million or so. So suddenly a million doesn't seem crazy expensive. If there's been a fifteen million dollar painting, even though it's nowhere near fifteen million dollars, but if there had only been a five hundred thousand dollar painting, suddenly a lot of people spending a million would seem odd and they'd be uncomfortable uh, uh, with it. And that certainly seems to have been the market effect with Barnes and also sort of creating a bigger tent. Uh, again, I I know that, you know, Asian uh, collectors are very interested in a lot of African diaspora uh, artists, but Ernie Barnes is so distinctively American and it's so interesting to see those works sold in Hong Kong. Again, I presume that there are Asian bidders uh, uh, pursuing them, but for the life of me, I can't imagine why. I'm I'm sure that's my cultural blinders, but it's still you know fascinating to me that that he's appealing um, uh, to such a broad global audience. Yeah, I mean, he, if you really look at the Sugar Shack, right? It's it's a uh, construct of character studies. Uh, different narratives. It really speaks kind of a universal language, you know? I mean, that it, it has, it's set in a certain time. Uh, there, you know, there's specific cultural references in it, but there are also things about it that are like very, very universal. It's like a, it's like a snapshot that has specificity, but how you connect to it uh, can be in lots of different ways. You know, uh, I don't know if you think about like a, FSA photograph, you know, that's like, that's, that's very capsuled, right? So it's like a specific time, uh, um, where a specific event occurred, but really like you can relate to that in many, many different ways. And I think, uh, Barnes has a certain, uh, broader popularity, uh, and, and maybe in the way, like, I don't know, Norman Rockwell or uh, Banksy, you know, this like broad populace, you know, that really connects connects to that work what obviously barnes was kind of missing which is now filling in is that uh sort of a lot of the kind of you know the academic sort of art world didn't embrace him as sort of one of you know one that would be kind of like you know with big museum shows and that kind of thing and i think what really one of the amazing things about this time is that we're just 
reevaluating all of these different things, you know, uh, historically. So this time was like the perfect time for people to open up to Barnes, right? Um, and I and uh, I talked to Luce about it, and she was sure that she worked for him for thirty years, and she was like, "This isn't." I, I always expected this to happen. They had this like foresight and belief. And I think it's because she had seen a lot of people really connect, uh, you know, to these pictures, like people love them, right? Um, you know, uh, the market is something different, right? So, you know, the market for Barnes is like very complex, right? Because it's like, you know, uh, there's a universal uh, appeal to those, but he doesn't fit in with a like the art historical canon. So I think some collectors are saying like, well, how does this fit in? I'm interested in this. And, you know, uh, so, so that's kind of working itself out right now. So, so how, how you show it, how, how you live with it, how, the, once you own that work, the, it, as you said earlier, it creates all sorts of um, questions about what the companions are to it or what the next work you would acquire is. Yeah, I guess it's fit with the collection. You know, it, it maybe it makes more sense in some collections than others. Uh, also, you have to sort of open your mind to think about, um, like, well, this isn't sort of what I've been taught in the art history books, you know, in this sort of uh, thread of what the specific art movements are, you know. Uh, and so uh, a lot of collections are built on those kind of things, you know, what sort of has been put, put forward as important or of this time and so you need to kind of uh kind of find how that fits and and why you know so and maybe it maybe it maybe it doesn't fit maybe it's just something interesting to buy that's you know a little bit of an outlier it doesn't necessarily it's not a museum you know like private collections aren't museum collections so you can buy what you want you know <laughs> so i don't know i i think uh i i think um you know Barnes also has certain appeal to different kinds of collectors, right? Because it's like a very segmented market. So, you know, the dance hall pictures are one market, and you could argue that's top of the market. Then there's the basketball pictures, and those are a different market. Uh, and, the, you know, to your point about like this universal appeal, like very quickly, these went from uh, American auctions or uh, I think some specialty African-American auctions like at Swan to being in the evening sale in London to being the evening sale at Hong Kong, New York, obviously, which is where the sugar shack sold. So it went so fast, so fast. And from uh, capsule to uh, global, it's extraordinary. You know, I, I mean, it's, I don't know. Uh, it's an extraordinary market and uh, yeah, I was glad to be part of it, you know, <laughs> in some small way. It's a great story, and uh, it, it's great, you know, that it both uh, worked out for Perkins, but also, you know, seems to have uh, helped you uh, establish uh, some more visibility. Um, I, we we could go on, but I think this is a good pl place to to you know wish you the best with the new business, and thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's always great to you know have a really great talk about all the multifaceted. Uh, aspects of the art world. So, appreciate it. Thank you for joining us at the Artelligence Podcast, edited by Colin Ketchin, who also composed the original music. 
For more episodes, listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to download the LiveArt app or visit us at liveart.io. Please join us for the next episode of the Artelligence Podcast. We're looking forward to it. <laughs>